Hello, I'm Terrence McNally, and you're listening to Disruptive, the podcast from Harvard's Wyss Institute for Biologically Inspired Engineering. When I mentioned I was working on a podcast about biofilms, a friend assumed I meant movies about biology. Most of us think little of biofilms, and if we do, we're probably imagining slime on stones in a stream, dirty pipes and drains, dental plaque, or worse. It's estimated they're involved in up to 80% of all microbial infections in the body. Scientists, however, are beginning to subvert and take advantage of the very properties that make biofilms so effective as nuisances or threats. A team at the Wyss have developed a novel protein engineering system called BIND, which stands for Biofilm Integrated Nanofiber Display. And they see biofilms as a new platform for nanomaterials that can help clean up polluted rivers, manufacture pharmaceutical products, fabricate new textiles, and more. And I'm going to speak about this with Vice core faculty member Neil Joshi and postdoctoral fellow in bioengineering, Anna Dura Tata. The mission of the Vice Institute is to transform healthcare industry and the environment by emulating the way nature builds. Our bodies and all living systems accomplish tasks far more sophisticated and dynamic than any entity yet designed by humans. By emulating nature's principles for self-organizing and self-regulating, these researchers develop innovative engineering solutions for healthcare, energy, architecture, robotics, and manufacturing. Vyss core faculty member Neil Joshi is an associate professor of chemical and biological engineering at the Harvard John A. Paulson School of Engineering and Applied Sciences. He earned a BS in chemistry at Harvey Mudd College and a PhD in organic chemistry from the University of California, Berkeley. Joshi is developing new biomaterials constructed from engineered proteins and peptides. And the goal of his research is to extract innovative design principles from materials and systems that are the product of natural evolution and then embed them in synthetic systems so that we can precisely tune their physical properties to suit our biomedical and biotechnological needs. Welcome, Neil Joshi, to Disruptive. Thanks for having me on, Terrence. Can you share a bit about your personal path, Neil? Like you mentioned, I did all of my schooling, really, in the field of chemistry. And so I've always been kind of interested in uh, what stuff is made of, I guess, from reading uh, ingredients labels on, on food to figuring out what types of materials make up, um, you know, everyday objects that we work with all the time. And that, I think, fueled my interest in chemistry, but uh, much more at the molecular level early on in my education. After I graduated from Berkeley, I started a postdoc at Boston University, where I worked on some more materials types of applications. So uh, I became more and more interested in how we could put together these molecules, essentially, into larger and larger structures and build uh, actual materials that had material properties that you and I associate with objects that we see every day. My postdoctoral work was in the context of tissue engineering, specifically cartilage tissue engineering. And then uh, when I started my own lab at uh, the Wyss and at Harvard, I wanted to combine my interest in synthetic chemistry and especially synthetic chemistry involving biomolecules with my interest in materials to create the new systems that uh, we're going to talk about today. And we're going to focus... Uh, on your work with biofilms. But briefly, your current projects that you're involved in employ a range of approaches, and you actually are working with a number of the platforms at Wyss. Could you talk just a bit about that? When I started at the Wyss, my lab was much more interested in synthesizing or recombinantly producing in bacteria interesting molecular components, kind of like uh, molecular Lego blocks, if you will, and putting them together in interesting ways. 
understanding how they self-assemble to make interesting materials, and mostly in the realm of peptides or proteins. So these are molecules made up of amino acids that are really the kind of workhorses of biology. When I started, I sat next to these people at the Wies Institute who were doing things like DNA origami, which is really kind of uh, blown the lid off of the field of molecular self-assembly in terms of uh, its capabilities. So they're able to really significantly surpass anything that you could do with peptides in terms of controlling shape of uh, self-assembled materials. And so that led me to kind of reconsider uh, our own path. I don't want to denigrate uh, peptide self-assembly because that's still a vibrant field and people are doing wonderful things there. But uh, it definitely inspired me to think about the problem in a different way uh, because the types of shapes and structures that we could assemble from peptides, which was uh, the focus of my research, was never going to kind of reach the same heights in the same way that DNA origami was. It so happened that we were, my lab is also neighbors, or we interact regularly with uh, many synthetic biologists who are also part of the Wies Institute. So people like Pam Silver, George Church, etc., you know, looking at the way that they were able to harness biosynthetic systems or living microbes to produce interesting things, we figured why don't we, instead of trying to synthetically make these molecules and remove them from that environment and reconstitute them into interesting materials, why don't we program the uh, living organisms, in this case microbes, to directly make the materials that we're interested in? Um, and so that's what really led us to biofilms. You referred to it there, but what was it? What is it about biofilm? In other words, when I've talked with uh, some of your peers about why they work with DNA, it was very clear. They said uh, protein does more things, but it's harder to control. DNA, because it uh, adheres so strictly to certain rules and limits, actually allows us to control it more. Out of all the various entities you could, and substances and so on you could be dealing with, what led you to biofilms? One thing is that they are highly abundant. So biofilms are pretty much literally everywhere. Uh, you mentioned in your introduction that they invoke images of kind of slime on teeth <laughs> or on or pond scum or something like that. And really, if you can consider that, you know, the vast, vast majority of all bacteria on the earth live as part of some type of community, which is essentially a biofilm. So they're extremely abundant and they are robust as materials. They have, you know, kind of intricate microstructures in some cases um, that enable them to perform interesting functions. Certainly from the perspective of the microbes that produce the biofilms, they allow them to survive under conditions where they otherwise wouldn't be able to survive. They also have interesting um, materials properties. So they can be in some cases, slimy, like some of these examples that we just discussed. But in other cases, they can be much more robust and potentially be relevant for the types of materials that we, we might want for engineering purposes or, or even, you know, consumer goods or the types of objects that we kind of interact with regularly on our daily lives. Why do cells uh, form into biofilms? Why do they form into communities? And what are the advantages and are there any disadvantages to their forming into communities? The advantages are that the biofilm enable the cells that make the biofilm to kind of divide the labor of survival up into 
uh, different lineages, if you will. So, you know, we generally think of bacteria as single cellular organisms. And um, to anthropomorphize them a little bit, you might think that it was kind of every man for himself in the bacterial community. But in fact, they do cooperate uh, quite a bit. And, you know, this has been known for quite a long time. And one of the ways in which they cooperate to kind of lessen the burden or increase their chances for survival in certain conditions is to form biofilms. So what biofilms do is uh, enable them to, for example, adhere to a surface that they might want to adhere to because it's uh, advantageous for them. It's nutrient rich or it prevents them from being washed away uh, under some kind of flow uh, and things like that. Biofilms also protect the cells essentially that produce the biofilms, right? So they can shield the cells from physical stresses, in some cases from environmental stresses, changes in their surrounding environments in terms of pH, uh, hydration, other environmental conditions, I suppose. Essentially, bacteria making a home for themselves. Yes, and one of the interesting phenomena, I think, is that the, the cells secrete outside of themselves substances which then create the protective layer? That's exactly right. You can kind of think of the biofilm as being composed of two things. One is the cells themselves, and the other thing is the matrix that they produce. And this matrix is in the form of polymers that they synthesize and secrete, which bind everything together and help to form this slime that we normally think of when we think of biofilms. What are the key properties that serve biofilms in nature, which make them attractive to you? I mentioned their abundance, which is nice for us in that they are easy to access. Um, the other thing is that they are materials that are made by microbes, which are the most engineerable types of organisms that we know of. And, you know, we specifically work with E. coli, which is possibly the best understood organism on the planet, certainly in terms of its genetics. And so that affords us a bit of ease and familiarity in terms of understanding how we can engineer that microbe from a genetic point of view to alter the types of biofilms that we can get out of this organism. In other words, those things that serve the molecules to form into uh, and the cells to form into uh, communities are the same things that make them useful for you, the ability to survive, the ability to invade, those sorts of things? Definitely. So um, in many cases, the robustness of the material, that, that matrix that I mentioned that's composed of various biopolymers, uh, the cells themselves want that material that they're making to be robust for the reasons that I mentioned. It protects them from all of these environmental conditions, allows them to adhere to surfaces. And in many cases, those are the properties that we also want as materials engineers for various functions. If you want to design a surface coating, for example, obviously adhesion to an underlying surface is going to be uh, you know, very important. And then just being able to withstand many different conditions um, is also important in various contexts from an engineering point of view for materials. What is self-assembly for those who that might be new to, and how does it work in biofilms, and how does it serve you? Self-assembly is um, essentially a property that allows molecular components, uh, in this case, that are synthesized by the cells themselves to come together to form larger structures. You can kind of think of it as um, an individual polymer if you were able to kind of look at it in isolation would look something like a tangled spaghetti noodle. It wouldn't have a lot of inherent structure on its own. It would be in some random orientation. But because of the properties of the molecule that makes up that chain, it's able to interact with its neighboring molecules and other entities in its environment, like the cell itself, to form materials that have more structure. So, for example, 
the system that we work with forms fibers. Instead of being in some random orientation, these units come together in order to form uh, essentially a line, uh, a stack, which uh, is then a chain in itself. So it's kind of forming this hierarchical structure. There's on one level the structure of the polymer chain itself, in this case a protein. That protein folds into a particular shape and then that you can consider as kind of a Lego block of sorts that comes together with its neighboring proteins in order to form larger structures and then those structures come together in turn to form still larger structures, etc. And this is basically the way that biology builds structure in general. So we are built that way. All materials in biology are built this way from the bottom up. The concept of a microbial factory has been around for a while. What is it that your team is doing that's new and different? We do kind of see a parallel with the trajectory of the concept of the microbial factory. Uh, when microbes were first discovered, it was in the context of uh, their role as a health threat. The germ theory of disease that started with uh, Pasteur and, and Koch uh, really led to the understanding that these you know, microscopic organisms are causing disease, and that is what fueled a bunch of research into how they operate. It was the genesis of fields like microbiology and uh, the discovery of DNA. All of that kind of came out of this, in part, germ theory of disease and the concept that these things are bad and we need to understand how they work. And because of that intense research into microbiology and similar fields, we can now harness these microbes, or certain microbes anyway, as factories, like you mentioned. And I would say... Up until very recently, the concept of using these microbes as factories has focused on programming them to produce uh, soluble molecules of interest. So, for example, a therapeutic like insulin, for example, that's produced recombinantly would be a protein in this case that you can have a solution of. You can have it in a vial and um, that can be used for some useful purpose. Or, you know, alternatively, biofuels have been a large focus in the field of thinking about microbes as factories. And these are essentially small molecules that can be useful in the context of fuels. But what we would like to do is figure out how we can make materials which in addition to producing the molecules of interest, necessitate organizing through self-assembly those molecules into these higher order structures, which is something that we think is kind of a frontier for the concept of the microbial factory. By the engineering that you do, you program what they will do, and that's what you mean by that second step. They don't just produce building blocks, but they actually have a plan, in quotes, if you will, of what they're going to do with those building blocks. Exactly. And I shouldn't take uh, too much credit here because we are essentially relying on what nature has already developed to a large degree in the form of these proteins that already have this self-assembly property built into them. E. coli, for example, for the system that we use, has already figured out how to use these proteins, form them into fibrils, use those fibrils to adhere to surfaces, etc. And we are essentially making minor tweaks to that structure to imbue these materials with new properties. What are some of the novel properties or functions that you've endowed biofilms with through your programming? So when E. coli forms biofilms, the biofilms that uh, E. coli forms usually have two major structural components in terms of those polymers that I was talking about earlier. One of the types of polymers that forms the biofilm is cellulose. Um, so this is a, a biopolymer that we're all familiar with. It forms, to a large extent, the structure of plants. It turns out that E. coli also uses cellulose as a polymer in a structural context. So that's one component of the biofilm. And then the other major structural component of the biofilm is curly fibers. And these are protein-based fibers that are formed through a process of self-assembly. And so that's the system that we exploit when we make 
these synthetic materials that we are engineering. And so the way that this curly system works is there's a particular protein called CSGA that is secreted by the cell, and it exists in this kind of random conformation, a random shape after it's secreted by the cell. And so it's just kind of floating around outside the cell until it encounters another protein on the E. coli surface, which induces it to form a specific fold. And that fold you can consider as the Lego block that can be kind of put together with a neighboring Lego block to start building a structure. And so then uh, that starts a growing fiber that's anchored to the cell surface. And as more and more of these CSGA proteins add on, the fiber grows out from the cell surface and eventually becomes long enough to encapsulate all of the cells. And so if you look at these cells under uh, an electron micrograph, for example, the cells will appear as these oval-shaped cells, which is what E. coli looks like, and they're embedded in this uh, fibrous mesh. They almost look, in some cases, like eggs sitting in nests or something like that. And so this entire fibrous mesh is essentially made of a single protein in the case of these E. coli strains that we have. So we see that as an engineering opportunity. And so that, uh, and that by the way, Neil, that is what nature does. That's right. And then you insert yourselves into that system. Exactly. By altering the structure of that protein monomer, the protein building block that undergoes that self-assembly process. And the way that we alter that structure is to append extra domains onto that protein. So these extra domains are intended to imbue that material with some new function of interest. Through a process of genetic engineering, the domains can be appended to that CSGA carrier protein. The extra domain then just kind of goes along for the ride through the whole secretion and self-assembly process. And then the, that extra domain is displayed all over the surface of the biofilm. So that fibrous mesh that I mentioned earlier would be coated in this extra domain. And the way that we choose that extra domain is based on a understanding of some particular new function that we want to uh, introduce into the biofilm. So, for example, things that we've done are to take a domain that has known surface binding activity. So there's a particular peptide that we show in one of our publications that is known to bind to steel surfaces. Um, and so this was, is a domain that was isolated from a completely separate uh, organism and uh, it turns out that that 17 amino acid sequence in isolation is able to bind to uh, steel surfaces quite strongly. So we can take that sequence and now append it to our CSGA protein, and it gets displayed all over the surface, and it will imbue the E. coli biofilm that we form with the ability to bind to steel strongly, whereas the unengineered system can easily be washed off of steel. So we have the ability, for example, to control which surfaces our biofilms will stick to, uh, which is important in the context of uh, certain engineering applications. Biofilms are advantageous in that they are easily replenishable. Um, you can kind of consider them as living materials that you can program. But uh, the downside of that is that they can, uh, for example, clog plumbing, uh, which would be <laughs> uh, not desirable in many applications. And so the ability to control which surfaces our biofilms adhere to could be advantageous in that context. How do you know, how do you find, how do you select both the thing that the peptide or what or whatever molecule has the property you want, and then how do you guess, or, or is it trial and error, that it will properly fuse and work with the molecule you're already working with? Yeah, so it turns out that there's actually a huge, huge library, like maybe, maybe tens of thousands of such sequences that are pretty well characterized in the literature. And so that 
saves us the work of having to develop them ourselves, which is nice. And one of the advantages of our system as we've characterized it so far is that it seems to be compatible with quite a wide range of different sequences and structures of, of these appended domains that I'm talking about. And so it's quite versatile in that regard. And in terms of figuring out which sequences will give you which desirable function, uh, there are many techniques that are available to engineer such sequences. Um, so phage display is one of them. It's a, a directed evolution type of process that is able to identify sequences with desired properties, for example, the ability to bind to certain surfaces. Overall, the point is that there is a huge body of literature out there uh, that essentially provides us kind of a sandbox of different domains that we can choose from. And so far, a large fraction of them seem to be compatible with our system and that they can be displayed on the biofilm. And then to some extent, it is a trial and error process to understand um, whether or not those are functioning properly after they're displayed. Mm -hmm. In other words, it had a function in this context. Will, when we display it with ours, will it have that same function to what extent, et cetera, right? That's the thing exactly. you're then looking at. Mm -hmm. Now, yep. I saw a quote that you said. You said, until recently, there was not enough cooperation between synthetic biologists and biomaterials researchers to exploit the synthetic potential of biofilms this way, and we're trying to bridge that gap. Can you talk a bit about that? I think these types of interfaces between fields are kind of coming up all the time, and it just so happens that I think these two particular fields, uh, there's an interesting interface between them at the moment. As I mentioned with the concept of microbial factories, the initial focus was on the production of soluble products. And so far, there hasn't been as much uh, focus on producing materials themselves. But that idea is actually kind of taking off and, and has quite a bit of uh, research in its early stages right now. So we see it as exciting in that regard. And when I talk about things like this, it sometimes seems like these ideas are very I don't know, out there, science fiction-y. But <laughs> I like to bring up a few examples of actual companies that are marketing products now. These are relatively new startups that I think fall under the umbrella of what I'm talking about. For example, I mean, this is more of a kind of a boutique application, but there are fashion designers out there, one in particular, who's shown that you can grow um, cellulose mats and form them into clothes. Um, it so happens that some bacteria produce large cellulose mats when they're grown in culture. And so uh, what this particular fashion designer does is takes, uh, I think she's derived it from a kombucha culture. So I don't know if you're familiar with sure. the fermented tea, kombucha. I'm in Los and Angeles, it, of course I am. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, so this is accessible to anybody. And she grows these microbes in her bathtub and they form a, a bathtub-shaped mat, which is kind of like a several-inch thick mat of pure cellulose, essentially. And she takes that mat and then dries it out in the sun and uh, it forms a kind of cellulose leather, if you will, that she then shapes into garments. And uh, her name is Suzanne Lee. She's got a TED Talk. You can check it out and everything. Um, and when she's giving her talk, she uh, is wearing one of the garments that she's made. It's kind of like a almost see-through or translucent uh, looking material is very unusual. Uh, but she mentions that even though it looks very cool, it would actually make a poor functional garment because it absorbs water very readily. So if you kind of walk out on a humid day or if it's raining, it will immediately <laughs> swell up and uh, obviously become a very poor garment. And at the end of her talk, she makes a plea for you know, engineers who can figure out how to make 
versions of cell, of the cellulose that are more appropriate for things like garments. And so we see that as kind of a uh, call to arms yeah. for engineering microbes that can do similar things as this naturally occurring microbe that produces the cellulose, but make materials that are more suitable for uh, engineering purposes. Interesting. I must say one thing. I actually, years ago, did uh, ferment kombucha. And what you end mm -hmm. up with is what looks like a large pancake, sort of. Exactly. Right. And right. That, that's the cellulose. And, or, or a mushu. It looks even more like a mushu. But, mm -hmm. but that's, that's what you're talking about, right? Exactly. And that, right. that is a very uh, – what, what, what that is that I'm talking about is a very sturdy – uh, and robust biofilm, correct? Yes, that's exactly right. Okay. In addition to that example, uh, there's a couple other examples of people who are taking this concept into uh, an industry that is potentially actually commercializable and will be you know, available to the general public. So another example is a company called Ecovative. And there's also one other company whose name I forget that is doing something very similar. It turns out that there's a fungus called mycelium, which survives by breaking down cellulosic plant matter. So it, the fungus survives by eating the cellulose in plants. But while it does that, in order to form a community again, it secretes its own polymers. And what it does is essentially form a biofilm of its own, except instead of the kind of more slimy type of biofilm that uh, we normally think of, it, this one is much more mechanically robust. So it's kind of like a foam almost. And so what these companies have figured out how to do is they will take plant matter, inoculate it with this particular fungus. The fungus will eat the cellulose in that plant matter and in the process synthesize all of these biopolymers to kind of stick everything together in a matrix. So what they get at the end is a solid block that is composed of whatever residual plant uh, matter is not digestible by the fungus and then the material that the fungus itself has made to bind everything together. So they get a solid block and that block is completely biodegradable. You can take that block and throw it in your uh, garden and compost it. And what they're doing now is making packaging materials out of this materials. You know, the styrofoam corner piece that you get when you uh, buy a new uh, TV or computer or something like that. Instead of having that made out of styrofoam, which is a petroleum-derived material, you can make this out of uh, this fungus, essentially, and plant biomatter. And that packaging material can then be thrown in, in the garden and can compost itself. So that's another example of harnessing the biosynthetic power of biology in order to make materials. What are amyloid proteins? Amyloids usually get a bad rap because they play a role in health challenges such as Alzheimer's, correct? Yeah. But in this case, they work for you. Tell us how they come into play. Yeah, it's kind of funny, actually, that we biofilms themselves have uh, a bad rap in, in some regard, and amyloids <laughs> within those uh, also have their own bad rap, but it turns out that we're trying to reform the right. image of both of those things simultaneously. So the initial understanding of amyloids were that they were a protein misfolding problem. So there were proteins that had some aberrant folding that led to the formation of fibrils. So this is an, another self-assembly process, but in, in its original context, it was understood as being bad because it contributed to the formation of these plaques that are characteristic of diseases like Alzheimer's, etc. But it turns out that that particular protein fold that's characteristic of amyloids is an extremely common type of protein fold. And uh, sometime after the amyloids were discovered in these pathological conditions, uh, another class of amyloids were discovered called functional amyloids. And these are, uh, instead of 
proteins that have uh, adopted some fold that they shouldn't be in, these functional amyloids are classified by the fact that the organisms have purposely formed these amyloid fibers because they provide some benefit to the organism. So in the case of the system that we're working with, uh, the curly fibers, the individual proteins that form the fibers are, um, are amyloid proteins, and the fibers themselves are formed through the polymerization of those amyloids to form large amyloid fibers, except in the context of E. coli, the organism is doing this on purpose because those fibers contribute to some fitness benefit in this case. For example, it helps them adhere to surfaces by forming these fibers. It also provides structural support to the biofilm structure itself. And one thing I've read is that amyloid proteins are enormously tough and strong. That's right. This is... Uh, both an advantage and a disadvantage for us because when we want to work with these proteins and engineer them, we're able to form materials that are quite robust because of the, the robust nature of the proteins themselves. But at the same time, it's difficult to analyze the composition of those materials because it's difficult to break down those, those proteins into their constituent components, to analyze them, to digest them, etc., which is kind of a key tool that is usually available to people who are working with such systems. Mm -hmm. So that presents a challenge, but the payoff is super tough natural materials performing functions you uh, desire. To give you kind of a benchmark, usually when people think of proteins, they are somewhat sensitive. So you can kind of think of um, drugs, for example, that are antibodies, which are proteins, right? So these uh, are relatively uh, sensitive entities. They have to often be refrigerated. They have to be kept under sterile conditions, uh, things like that. But amyloid proteins are much more robust. So our amyloid proteins, we can boil them and detergent, and they still won't break apart into their constituent uh, components. Very good. What is your team doing with enzymes? It turns out that enzymes are used quite frequently in many different fields. Uh, so pharmaceutical companies routinely use enzymes to help them achieve certain chemical transformations. Um, so enzymes are essentially nature's catalysts, and they're good at doing certain types of chemical transformations which uh, are necessary in some cases, for example, in the synthesis of drug intermediates and things like that. And so there's a need to some extent to understand how to use these enzymes in a process where you're synthesizing a certain compound. And so what we're able to do is modify our very robust biofilm-based material with enzymes on its surface using the, the technique that I described to you before. And it turns out that that enables the enzymes to become more stable than they otherwise would be. It also adheres them to the surface so that they can uh, be recovered from a reaction mixture and then reused, um, which brings down the cost of the manufacturing. Another advantage is that it's completely biologically produced. So uh, our system doesn't require any purification of those enzymes or reconstitution in the context of some bioreactor. We have a system that is a single organism that could uh, potentially create the material that binds the enzymes together and the enzymes themselves and then incorporate that into kind of a manufacturing context to facilitate the production of certain chemicals. You've talked about proteins, peptides, enzymes. What are these things? What defines these things so that people sort of have a notion of what we're talking about? As you mentioned, um, you had talked to other people right, right. at the VIS who are working with DNA, which is one type of biopolymer. Proteins are another type of biopolymer, and uh, they really form the uh, workhorse of biological systems. So they, uh, in some cases, 
play a structural role like the curly proteins um, that we are talking about here uh, in their ability to self-assemble into larger and larger structures. In other cases, they uh, are able to perform chemical catalysis, and those types of proteins would be enzymes. And what characterizes proteins is really just a, uh, a linear string of, of amino acids. And so this is a type of biopolymer that all living things use to perform various functions. So an enzyme is a type of protein. What defines it as an enzyme? The thing that defines an enzyme is, is its ability to perform catalysis, which is just uh, facilitating a, a particular chemical reaction. You're also doing some work in the biomedical space, work with the gut, uh, for instance. Can you talk a bit about that? When we initially characterized our system, we were able to uh, show some of these functions that I mentioned before, where we could control the adhesion to certain surfaces. We could, in other cases, immobilize things onto this biofilm. Uh, and we could really start to think about programming how the microbes and uh, the biofilm that they were forming was interacting with its surroundings. And so we thought that we could also do something similar inside the body. So it turns out that our guts are full of microbes as we are more and more aware of. And things like the Human Microbiome Project have also fueled a bunch of research into understanding uh, what these interactions between the microbes that live in our gut uh, look like when they interact with our body. And all of those microbes live, again, as part of some community, which you could define as a biofilm. And so we envisioned our bind system being used inside the body to essentially reprogram the way that certain microbes were interacting with our bodies and use them for some therapeutic purpose. How has your work progressed? So just like we appended extra domains onto our uh, curly fiber proteins in order to control adhesion to, for example, steel surfaces, we thought that we could append other domains that had known tissue binding capabilities and use something like that to, for example, control the residence time of a particular engineered probiotic uh, bacterium inside the gut. So right now, most probiotics uh, don't really stick around for very long inside the gut. There's some that stick around for longer than others, but it would be nice to start to think about engineering probiotics as essentially drug delivery vehicles and being able to control how long they live in the gut, where they live in the gut, and, and things like that. And so we have thought about uh, using our bind system in a similar context. How are you going about that work? What have been your steps, your obstacles, your overcoming of obstacles, and so on along that path? Yeah, so it turns out that um, translating this technology from the lab into something that's suitable to put into a living organism, for example, a mouse or a human for that matter, has many challenges. And the first of which is reconstituting the system in a probiotic or commensal microbe. And so this is a microbe that has the capability to traverse your gastric system and then colonize your uh, intestine for some extended period of time. Uh, the types of organisms that are able to do that are not exactly the same as the types of organisms that we typically use in the lab. So you can kind of think of the organisms that are able to survive in the gut as animals that are able to exist in the wild. Mm -hmm. And the 
lab strains of E. coli that we typically use and that we've developed our system with are more like domesticated animals. Uh-huh. You can kind of imagine what would happen if you uh, took a domesticated animal and just released it into the wild without uh, anything to protect it. And so that's essentially what would happen if we took our system as it stands and fed it to a mouse or a human for that matter. Mm-hmm. The, the cells would just immediately die essentially because they aren't able to cope with the, the stringent conditions that exist in inside the body. That's the problem. And how do you overcome that? Yeah, so it turns out that there are various probiotic strains of E. coli, which many people don't know about. They're just uh, more familiar with pathogenic strains of E. coli, which you you hear much more often about. Uh, But it turns out that there are certain strains of E. coli that actually have quite a long track record of safe use in humans as probiotics. You know, you or I could uh, go down to the drugstore right now in, in, in the States and get a pill that has probiotics in it just over the counter. Uh, and these strains of bacteria that you can get in that manner are typically things like lactobacillus uh, and similar types of, of strains uh, that kind of have known safety standards. And it turns out that there are E. coli strains that also have similar safety standards that you can use as um, kind of a starting point for the types of engineering that we want to do. And so we have reconstituted our system now that I described uh, in the context of the lab E. coli. We've reconstituted that bind system now in a probiotic strain of E. coli that's now more appropriate for deployment inside the gut. Um, And so that comes with its own set of challenges in terms of the genetic engineering. And we're just at the stage now where we are taking this engineered microbe and actually determining its ability to colonize the gut just like its unengineered precursor in, in mouse studies. We now turn to Ana Duratata, one of the researchers leading the work on adapting biofilms for therapeutics in the human gut. Anna, who grew up in Poland, explains that her current work at the Wies brings together two long-held passions. I think if I go back in past, I always remember that I always were interested in the biology and biological sciences. I always liked uh, animals. I always love to going uh, to zoo and I loved watching uh, many uh, programs uh, about biological sciences even when I was a kid. And I loved uh, engineering when I was even in high school. I used to love to uh, build. So I would like to combine these two things. That's why I decided to get a bachelor in uh, engineering, um, biological sciences in biotechnology in Poland. So uh, there I have first exposure uh, for engineering uh, microbes, and then I decided to go to Georgia Tech to get my PhD degree, and then I was working on the protein engineering. I wanted to go more in the uh, bioengineering field. That's why I met Neil. I decided to uh, join his lab in the DVs. But she wasn't immediately involved with biofilms. When I joined Neil Group, I worked on totally on different projects. It was on the protein switches. But I was the only person who was worked on that project that time in his lab. And uh, other uh, members of his group was working on the biofilms, on engineering. And, you know, if you are between people who are so excited and vibrant talking about engineering of biofilms, after some time you are really getting interested in that too. I was only looking on engineering biofilms, slightly different perspective than other uh, peers in my group because I'm biochemist. So I was thinking mostly about biofilms as a, how we can use them, for example, drug delivery. 
So that time uh, I started discussing with Daniel and we decided to change slightly path, uh, which everyone was moving in the lab in the, for engineering of biofilms and decided to use a bind system for the drug delivery in the gut. The public, it seems to me, has begun to pay more attention over the last few years to the gut and to the microbiome in the gut. What have we learned over the last few years that have caused us to pay more attention there? We learned that we know uh, very little about a microbiome in the gut. In last few years, there have been done tremendous amount of the research done on the microbiome in the gut, but still we don't uh, understand a lot. And we know also that there is high increase of many disorders related to the gut, like uh, inflammatory bowel diseases like Crohn's or ulcerative colitis and other, even diabetes too, it's linked to the microbiome. So that's why in last few years, there is higher interest to engineer and a microbiome for not only therapeutics, but also for uh, learning exactly uh, specific communities in the microbiome and how does it correlate to the specific disorders. Neil and I had talked earlier about the bad rap that biofilms and amyloids get. Well, add E. coli. Some strains are potent pathogens, but some are probiotics, beneficial in the ecosystem of our gut. Neil and Anna's team are engineering novel probiotics by engineering a strain of E. coli, Nissel-1917, named for Alfred Nissel, who isolated it during the First World War. This is probiotic known from last 100 years. It's the most well-studied probiotic. And because of our uh, technology bind system works in the E. coli, we decided to engineer uh, E. coli Nissel probiotic for delivery specific therapeutics. And how would they do that? The extracellular matrix, which the cells of the biofilm secrete, is made up primarily of curly fibers. Discovered in the late 1980s, curly fibers are involved in the biofilm's formation and its adhesion to surfaces. And the VIS team fuses the curly fibers with therapeutics. Because we are able to engineer these biofilms for specific thing. So in the gut, for example, we are able to, because of that, we are able to engineer uh, curly fibers, which are part of the biofilm. We are able to add, fuse um, specific domains, which are able to bind to the epithelium or the mucus layers in the gut and increase colonization of the bacteria. So we are using biological nature of the biofilms and also engineering part that we can engineer this matrix uh, for a specific purpose uh, in the gut. What is it that your lab is doing that other labs haven't done? Yeah. In our case, our bacteria is designed that way that it's uh, adhere to the, uh, to the surface of the epithelium in the gut. And because of a specific delivery site, it's able to deliver to specific place therapeutics. So we have uh, in specific place, we have higher concentration of therapeutics in the um, localized sites of inflammation in the gut. Even though they take it orally and it goes into the system, down the throat, just, you know, just like any other, you're able to target where it lands and adheres? Our bacteria is engineered that way that uh, on our biofilm uh, curly fibers, we have displayed uh, human anti-inflammatory cytokines, which we know that they bind very well to the uh, mucus. We are able to uh, deliver them to specific uh, closer site of the uh, inflammation site compared to uh, other engineered bacteria. Neil Joshi expands a bit on how they're working with our own biology. These are 
small molecules or proteins really that are secreted already by our own intestines in order to try to dampen inflammatory responses. And we are taking those domains and now appending them to our biofilm to see if we can similarly further dampen uh, inflammatory responses, especially in cases uh, where inflammation has kind of run amok, uh, as is the case in many chronic inflammatory diseases. We return to the story of the biofilm development process. How and why did you begin to work with the gut on a chip uh, out of another platform at VIS? And that is one of the unique, I would say, advantages of working at a place like the VIS because uh, people are developing things like gun on a chip which can really facilitate this type of research. So it turns out that when we are trying to make this transition from the microbial strains that we engineer in the lab to figuring out how they interact with a living organism, there aren't really very many intermediary steps that are appropriate. Um, so you can imagine that's kind of a big leap to take this uh, microbe that we've been engineering in the lab and understand what it does in the context of a mouse, for example. And in other cases, there are certain in vitro systems that you could think about using. So, for example, one thing that we have done and that many people do is to culture cells that are derived from your intestine. Um, so we can take human cancer-derived cells that are from the intestine. So these are colon cancer-derived cells and grow them in a dish and look at the interaction of our engineered microbes with those cells. Uh, and so that's kind of a, a baby step in the right direction. But it turns out that the problem is that you can't really co-culture bacteria and mammalian cells very easily at all because the bacteria are much more adept at using nutrients. And so they will immediately overgrow in the course of about an hour and kill the, the underlying mammalian cells, which makes the characterization of this interaction very difficult. And what the gut on a chip does is it recapitulates many of the physiologically relevant um, factors that are present in the gut. So, for example, instead of just having these static cells in a dish, the gut on a chip incorporates an element of flow. And also it mimics the process of peristalsis. So this is the movement of the walls of your intestine that is critical for your intestines to function. And it turns out that uh, those two things in particular are quite important for preventing the overgrowth of bacteria. And so this gut on a chip now is somewhat unique in its ability to facilitate these host microbe interaction studies. You've got the mammalian cells and the bacterial cells. When they're in the gut on a chip, those physical actions allow the mammalian cells to survive longer against the bacteria? You can think of it that way, or you can think of it as that they just wash out bacteria that isn't really adhered, and so the bacteria don't overgrow oh. uh, as quickly as they would in the context of a static dish. So the closer it gets to the actual conditions of an organism, that's what, what changes the way the two kinds of cells interact. Exactly. So, for example, we have taken our engineered microbes and put them on the gut on a chip or in the gut on a chip, and we can co-culture the mammalian cells with the bacterial cells for uh, two days and even sometimes beyond. So this is uh, way beyond what you could do in a static dish uh, before you would achieve overgrowth, essentially. And so, for example, interactions that take a longer time to develop, the formation of biofilms themselves, for example, uh, usually takes many hours to days, possibly. And so those types of interactions can't very easily be studied in the static dishes, but the gut on a chip really facilitates the study of those types of processes. Anadara Tata offers an assessment of where their work stands now and what their next steps might be. We were able to, in vitro, 
show that our system works, that uh, our uh, engineer bacteria uh, are able to treat inflammation. Right now, we are uh, moving to testing our system in the mice to try to find out if how uh, our engineered bacteria is reliable in the in vivo system. If the current work you're doing is successful, what will you have learned? If my current work will be successful for me, that uh, it means that in the vivo system, uh, we were able to treat inflammation uh, inside the gut of mice. What we learned, first of all, is that we develop new methods of the delivery and the, uh, therapeutics inside the gut, uh, localized delivery. Uh, so all, the, all other systems which are exist right now, they, as I mentioned, they deliver inside the lumen uh, therapeutics. We are able to deliver to specific site of the inflammation or any site of the problem uh, in the gut because, of course, the system doesn't need to be used only for, uh, for treating inflammation, but also for many other things. I think we would like to see some kind of uh, testing in the humans uh, for next step. If this engineered probiotic is able to colonize human gut and deliver therapeutics in specific sites of inflammation, that could be really great. Where do you see your work evolving over the next five or ten years? I think I would like to stay in the field of engineering of the uh, microbiome in the gut. I think it's so dynamic, innovative uh, area right now. There is a lot of going on around, uh, even in Boston, if you look on other groups. So I really think that uh, I would like to work more on uh, the, uh, trying to engineer delivery therapeutics inside the gut and, and engineer microbiome uh, in the gut. And she sees herself continuing that work at the VIS. It's really great environment for working because it's so vibrant and dynamic uh, environment. It's so, uh, it's not small, but in relatively small place, we have so multidisciplinary uh, people. If we uh, have problem uh, with our project, we can discuss uh, with folks totally different background than we are and try to find uh, answer from different angle. And this is excellent environment for collaboration with different groups, uh, not even in the same platform, but between the platforms. Neil Joshi is likewise excited about the prospects for their work with biofilms. We're particularly excited about uh, some of the biomedical applications of this bind technology. And we really see it as a biomaterial that's kind of resident inside the gut that can be genetically programmed. So um, this is something that could persist in the gut for weeks, months, perhaps even longer. And the functions of that material that are living in your gut can be programmed genetically. They can potentially respond to their environment. We can create different versions of the biofilm depending on whether that biofilm is experiencing certain types of disease or other environmental factors. And so it can really be a very dynamic type of material. You can almost think of it as a prosthetic or a device that would live inside the gut and respond to its environment. So that, I would say, is kind of a grand vision for where this could go in terms of the biomedical applications. Could you talk just a bit about what it's like to work at the VIS? Yeah, working at the VIS has been a unique opportunity for for me. So um, I've already kind of described to you a little bit how uh, just the people that I was around really had a dramatic influence on the type of research that we were pursuing. And in fact, our entry or our interest in engineering biofilms came from essentially a mixture of our interest in protein engineering and the, the really amazing stuff that is happening in synthetic biology that we were privy to as part of the VIS community. In addition to that, the 
somewhat unique focus of the VIS in terms of producing technologies that are really going to be useful in the real world in the context of either commercialization or some other type of real world deployment has really shaped the way that we think about our own research. So, you know, instead of creating things that are just really cool from a scientific or engineering point of view, we are constantly surrounded by people, you know, developing technologies that are making it out into the real world or designed to make it out into the real world. And so that also influences our own thinking about our own projects to think similarly or along the same lines. Can you provide an example of how that yeah. influences your work? Uh, this is something that I, I didn't talk to you about, but we have some previous work where we've made certain synthetic peptides that have very interesting self-assembly properties from a kind of fundamental uh, science point of view. But we eventually moved away from that research because even though those particular peptides that we were studying form these very interesting nanotubes that have interesting material properties, we didn't see those as having that much of a future in terms of their real-world applicability. And so by contrast, some of the biofilm stuff that we are doing, uh, we see as being much closer to being a technology that could be used in the real world, in, either in the context of the biomedical applications that I just mentioned, or in the context of industry. So the, the enzyme catalysis that uh, we discussed is something that already happens in industry in terms of the, the use of enzymes and figuring out new ways to integrate those enzymes with manufacturing processes is, I think, very close to a real-world application. That, and we're already uh, collaborating with certain um, industrial partners to implement these systems in kind of context that would be relevant from a manufacturing perspective. So another application that we think could be quite interesting for the buying technology is for the creation of scalable materials. So you can kind of think of plastics that you uh, encounter every day in your life, which are essentially derived from petroleum. So these are resources that we are extracting from the earth, reconstituting into various plastics, and then they make, you know, the chairs that we sit on and the, and the consumer goods that we use all the time. It's a non-renewable source. And in a grand vision, you could imagine making those things through a process of fermentation, essentially, through a system similar to BIND, where you could program what types of material properties you wanted uh, genetically and then have microbes produce materials of interest and then harvest those materials from these microbial cultures and reconstitute them into actual products. Thank you very much, Neil. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thanks, Darren. You've been listening to Disruptive, Putting Biofilms to Work. I'm Terrence McNally. My guests have been Neil Joshi and Anna Duratata. You can learn more about their innovative work with biofilms as well as an exciting range of other projects at the VIS website. That's vis.harvard.edu, wyss.harvard.edu, where you'll find articles, videos, animations, and additional podcasts. To have podcasts delivered to you, you can sign up at the VIS site or on iTunes or SoundCloud.com. My thanks to Seth Kroll and Mary Talikas of the VIS Institute and to J.C. Swadek in production. And to you, our listeners, I look forward to being with you again soon. Mm-hmm.